and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We hope your summer's off to a great start. We got a lot of great articles to talk about. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. I won't varnish the headline because it says it all. Cheese photo leads to Liverpool drug dealer's downfall. Oh. Huh. <laughs> like a photo of cheese. Yeah, like a okay. photo of cheese. He basically posted a photo on an encrypted messaging service called EncroChat. And that chat platform had been cracked by the police. So Detective Lee Wilkinson of Merseyside Police said he went by the name Toffee Force. That was his online handle. <laughs> and he was involved in supplying large amounts of drugs. So the detective said that his love of Stilton cheese ultimately led to his downfall after his palm and fingerprints were analyzed and it was established they belonged to Stewart. So if you want to see the picture, you can. It's remarkably blurry for what it is. You can see some of the palm lines and things like that, but huh. it's a nice fusion of old school fingerprinting ID right. techniques and new school digital photos on encrypted chat platforms. So mm -hmm. be aware. That's right. You go showing off your cheese, man. That's You're right. I, I will admit that I thought that this was going to be like he somehow imprinted his fingerprint onto the cheese and they did oh. some incredible <laughs> reverse, you know, engineering to pull it off. But, uh, you know, this is good, too. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, a picture of his hand works as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right. And he probably wasn't expecting something like that to happen. I mean, it was in, hey, this is my favorite cheese, a mature blue Stilton, which if you're a cheese eater, that's a bold choice. Yeah, it's a yeah, stinky. It's a stinker. Yeah. It's a super stinker. Stinker, but only the finest for Carl Stewart. Hope he can get some aged Stilton in prison. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> they got to smuggle that in. It makes it even stinkier. You don't want it. Like, <laughs> well, then he's undoubtedly got the connections he'll need to feed his cheese habit. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from theconversation.com. It's titled, To What Extent Are We Ruled by Unconscious Forces? So this is a little bit of a longer one, but really interesting survey into some of the science behind a lot of what scientists and popular culture think about how we actually make decisions, whether or not we rationally come to decisions, or if a lot of it is from background information or bias or influence or what have you. So mm -hmm. luckily, psychological science gives us important and perhaps surprising insights. One of the most important findings comes from psychologist Benjamin LeBay in the 1980s. He devised an experiment which was deceptively simple. People were asked to sit in a relaxed manner in front of an adapted clock. On the clock face was a small light revolving around it, and all people had to do was to flex their finger whenever they felt the urge and remember the position of the light on the clock face when they experienced the initial urge to do so. At the same time as that was all happening, people had their brain activity recorded via a electroencephalogram, or EEG, and what LeBay was able to show was that the electrical activity in the brain built up much earlier than people consciously intended to flex their finger and then went on to do it. So in other words, unconscious mechanisms through the preparation of neural activity set us up for any action we decide to take. But this all happens before we consciously experience intending to do something. Hmm. 
However, we now know that there are several fundamental problems with the experimental setup. So, for example, when correcting for biases in subjective estimates of conscious intention, the gap between conscious intentions and a brain activity reduces. Another way of approaching the idea of whether we are ultimately ruled by our unconscious is to look at instances where we might expect unconscious manipulation to occur. The most common example was marketing and advertising. James Vicari, who was a marketer and psychologist in the 1950s, convinced a cinema owner to use his device to flash messages during a film screening, such as drink Coca-Cola, for a three-thousandth of a second. So that's very, very fast. <laughs> right. Yeah. He claimed that sales of the drink shot up after the film ended. And after the significant furor around the ethics of this finding, Vicari came clean and admitted that the whole thing was a hoax. <laughs> he had made up the data. Hmm. And in fact, it is notoriously difficult to show in laboratory experiments that the flashing of words below the conscious threshold can prime us to even press buttons on a keyboard that are associated with those stimuli, let alone manipulate us into actually changing our choices in the real world. Mm -hmm. The more interesting aspect around this controversy is that people still believe, as has been shown in recent and studies that methods such as subliminal advertising are in use when in fact there is legislation protecting us from it huh. which is kind of interesting i did not realize that but also you know like who's going around checking for the subliminal messaging that may or may not work right right like how are you gonna sue somebody yeah, yeah exactly so do we make decisions without consciously thinking to find out researchers have investigated three areas the extent to which our choices are based on unconscious processes whether those unconscious processes are fundamentally biased and what, if anything, can be done to improve our biased, unconscious decision-making. Mm -hmm. To the first point, a pivotal study examined whether the best choices made in consumer settings were based on active thinking or not. The startling findings were that people made better choices when not thinking at all, especially hmm. in complex consumer settings. Huh. How do they define better in that case? I mean, I guess it's, yeah. a, it's a question of value or something, but I mean, I don't know. It feels like if they give me three refrigerators to choose from, it's really well known that if they make that really, really expensive high-end refrigerator, you get more sales of the mid-range refrigerator because people are sitting there going like, oh, I'm, I'm being moderate. I'm in the middle. Whereas if they only gave you two, you wouldn't sell as many at that level. But, like, mm -hmm. who's to say that I don't need an incredibly fancy refrigerator? Like, I don't <laughs> know. Right? Yeah, they weren't clear on what the setup around this study was specifically. So we don't really know what is judged as making better decisions. Yeah. But mm -hmm. the researchers did argue that whatever that outcome was, was because this is our unconscious being less constrained than conscious processes, which make huge demands on our cognitive system. Mm. So unconscious processes such as intuition function in ways that automatically and rapidly rapidly synthesize a range of complex information, and this gives us an advantage over thinking deliberately. So moving on, the next question is, what about bias in decision-making? A highly instructive study showed that through the use of a now widely adopted technique called the implicit association test, people harbor unconscious biased attitudes towards other people. Mm. It's also suggested that these attitudes can actually motivate biased decisions in employment practices and legal, medical, and other important decisions. Mm -hmm. Sure. However, the alarm can be muted when looking more closely at research on the topic since it shows two critical problems with the IAT. First, if you look at an individual's test scores on the IET one time and get them to do it again, the two do not match consistently. And also, it has been shown that IET results are a poor predictor of actual decision-making behavior, which means that the test has low validity. 
So even with all of these tests that we have, there's a lot of shaky conclusions that are made from it because of the fact that they're just not the sorts of things that stay static. You know, we Mm -hmm. react to the tests themselves. Right. And finally, there have also been efforts to try and improve the way we make decisions in our day-to-day lives, such as healthy eating or saving for retirement. Mm-hmm. The way to do this is through gently nudging people so that they can automatically detect which option is the better option to take. For example, you could make sweets less accessible in a supermarket than fruit. Mm. This research has been adopted globally in all major public and private institutions, but recent research shows that nudge techniques often dramatically fail. They also backfire, leading to worse outcomes than if they weren't used at all. And there's several (laughs) reasons for this, such as applying the wrong nudge or misunderstanding the context. Mm -hmm. However, we still strategically believe we have less agency, control, and responsibility in certain areas based on how consequential they are. Hmm. For example, we would rather claim conscious control and agency over our political voting than over what breakfast cereal we're purchasing. (laughs) So (laughs) we may argue that our poor breakfast choice was down to subliminal advertising. (laughs) However, we are less inclined to accept being duped into voting a certain way by big tech social media forces. Right. The Pop-Tarts, we can't justify that. But (laughs) yeah, yeah. And I mean, just as an aside, like I personally mostly don't believe that anybody even chooses their political opinions willingly i mostly believe it's a nature thing but that's neither here nor there Uh, (laughs) just just points out that you know the reasons and the ways in which we relate to our own free will or our own beliefs and our own influences from outside forces varies widely from person to person true i'm sure many people would completely disagree with my stance sure so you know at the end of the day why did you fall in love with your partner maybe they just made you feel strong or secure challenged you in some way or maybe they just smelt nice uh (laughs) (laughs) Just like any other matter of importance, it is multifaceted and there's no single answer. And uh, what the author argues is that it's unlikely your conscious self had nothing at all to do with it and that it was a nice blend. Well, I don't know about you guys. I flashed up three thousandth of a second placards that was like, marry me now. And that, that's how I got it. <laughs> well, sneaky, all sneaky. Right. <laughs> it's a little late for me to use that one, but maybe I can use it for something else. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Next link. Next link. link. All right. Well, we're going to stay inside the brain. This next article is from Psyche.co, and it's sort of a a part explainer, part rant about the average person's understanding of the brain chemical dopamine. Hmm. So the author, Dean Barrett, is not blaming the average person for their lack of knowledge, but he's obviously not a big fan of clickbait headlines like simple tips to get your dopamine flowing. His overall point is twofold. One, there are a lot of other neurotransmitters that are at least as important as dopamine. And two, you're not even getting dopamine right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To start with, he says it's really wrong to think of dopamine as a pure pleasure chemical. On the one hand, yes, it is the main neurotransmitter within the reward pathway, which is a small circuit in the brain that connects different areas and generally speaking gives us pleasure when it lights up. But on the other hand, you can't think of it as more dopamine means more pleasure. Because if that were the case, then the Parkinson's medication Levodopa would be the hottest street drug around. (laughs) And it definitely is not. Levodopa is actually quite unpleasant to take and sometimes has to be paired with a dopamine agonist or inhibitor to keep the patient at exactly the right amount of dopamine, not too much or too little. So Burnett uses the metaphor of fuel for a car in the sense that it's absolutely necessary for the car to function, but sticking the nozzle in the window and pouring extra fuel in the passenger seat is not going to make the car run better. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So another important chemical that does sometimes get talked about, but not very accurately, according to Burnett, are endorphins. Usually you hear about these being associated with exercise, right? Like a runner's high. But when we call it a high, it's actually a very literal comparison because endorphins are a natural opiate and they interact with the exact same receptors in the brain as heroin and morphine. Mm. And studies have shown that rather than directly inducing pleasure, the primary chemical function of both endorphins and opiate drugs is actually to regulate and block pain signals. Mm. And I'll admit, this was the point where I started getting a little irritated with the author because more pleasure versus less pain is an interesting distinction. But we're also talking about like really subjective experiences here. Yeah. Like, have either of you ever actually been on morphine? I have it like in medical contexts and Sure, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't do very well, you know, I figured it was probably helpful to kind of add that context, but right. I don't do well on narcotics at all. Like right. I get super emotionally unstable, I get like sleepy and fussy. I'm no fun. Yeah. And maybe it helps with the pain, but I'm just turned into such a monster. It's just not for me. Well, and that's what a lot of people report is like they really hate it, it makes them itchy. But mm. like for me, I can tell you i once spent four days in the hospital on a heavy morphine drip and i felt a hell of a lot better than just no pain and Mm. maybe what that means is i exist in a steady state of pain that i've just gotten used to so it felt better to me than it would for someone who's well adjusted i don't know right i'm just saying for me personally if i had to pick a drug to ruin my life with it would be morphine all the way (laughs) and i know a lot of other people don't feel that way yeah (laughs) another important brain chemical involved in feeling good is oxytocin which is Mm -hmm. often nicknamed the love hormone. It's highly active in both romantic and family relationships. And there have been some interesting studies on how it affects people differently depending on whether they're in a relationship at the time. Ah. So if you're single, oxytocin makes you more outgoing with potential partners and stand closer to them than you otherwise would. But if you're in a committed relationship, oxytocin actually makes you more standoffish toward attractive strangers because it Ah. makes you want to protect that bond that's already there. Interesting. But more recently, they've also discovered that oxytocin actually ramps up all social encounters, both positive and negative. So if you have a fight with your significant other while you happen to be flooded with oxytocin, you're going to feel worse about it and remember it for longer. So here again... Oxytocin Mm. isn't just a quick, happy fix either. None of these chemicals Mm -hmm. are. There's also serotonin, which doesn't make you happier at all. It just acts as a mood and emotion modulator, kind of like oil in the machine. So if Mm. other chemicals are trying to make you feel better, serotonin helps them do what they need to do. Mm. And then there's stuff that, like, the clickbait articles haven't even ever touched, to my knowledge, such as glutamate which is actually more abundant in the brain as a whole than any other neurotransmitter in animals. The popular street drug ketamine stimulates the glutamate system, which has actually led researchers to look into ketamine as an antidepressant. Hmm. There's also GABA, or gamma-aminobutyric acid, which is a broad-spectrum inhibitor that increases happiness only by decreasing the kind of neuron overactivity involved in, say, anxiety. Benzodiazepines Mm. and barbiturates are both known for their happification effects, and they both stimulate GABA activity. So, Mm. you know, ultimately what Burnett wants to stress above all else is that we only know a tiny fraction of what these chemicals do and how they interact. And trying to simplify the human psyche into a handful of straightforward chemicals, let alone just one chemical, is as reductionist and wrong as anything Freud ever said about mothers. So, I mean, <laughs> don't talk to this guy about dopamine is the lesson, or he will be very unhappy <laughs> with you. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, guys. Good news. 
finally, the mystery of the watermelon's origins may have been solved. Oh, <laughs> I didn't realize we were unaware of its yeah. origins. <laughs> Yet another thing we don't know. <laughs> well, Gizmodo reports that researchers have identified the likely origins of Citrinus lanatus vulgaris. I love that vulgaris is in there, mm-hmm. which we commonly know as the watermelon, according to a new study. So we've known that watermelons are native to Africa, but we haven't known exactly when where and how a watermelon predecessor was domesticated and then turned into the fruit we know today. As the lead author, Suzanne Brenner, who is a botanist at the University of Munich, put it, everybody thought there were only four wild species and that the sweet watermelon that we eat today came from South Africa. But in 2015, one of her then-grad students found through DNA sequencing of different specimens across Africa that the suspected watermelon ancestor in the South was just a distant relation. The trouble is watermelons and, you know, wherever they came from in terms of like other plants, they don't tend to fossilize, right? We Mm. don't have a lot of really good preserved older records. And so that's further obscured the fruit's true origins. So sometimes the seeds will fossilize and that can be useful for looking at ancient DNA. But the oldest DNA in this paper comes from 270-year-old watermelon leaves that were preserved in an herbarium. Hmm. So the team reared samples of all watermelon species and grew them to maturity in greenhouses in Munich, Germany, and Ithaca, New York. After that, they genetically sequenced those watermelon samples and compared them with DNA extracted from a wild fruit in Sudan, which is the Cordofan melon. They found about 16,000 genetic structural variants between the two plants and mapped those differences to specific traits of each fruit. And they found that the watermelon likely became sweeter as a product of domestication, although it may have lost its bitterness prior to domestication because the cordophon fruit is not bitter either. So Mm. the cordophon melon is smaller than cultivated watermelons, and it does lack the striping and the bright red interior we've come to associate with modern watermelons. But They know that large, long watermelons were eaten raw about 4,360 years before present in Egypt, and they know Mm. this because of ancient iconography, but the drawings (laughs) are of whole fruit. I mean, they've got this really cool iconography in an Egyptian tomb Mm -hmm. depicting a melon of unknown species. I mean, and it's a melon, Mm. and it's got the green stripes, but the problem is... Because it's a whole fruit, we don't know if they're red on the inside. So without material evidence, researchers relied on a combination of genetic research and historical context. Hmm. And even today, there's evidence for the in-between stages because in the 1800s, it was common to find white-fleshed watermelons in the U.S. But due to developments in corporate agriculture and public demand, they've almost been bred out of existence, which is kind of sad because I would totally love to try a white-fleshed watermelon. That sounds interesting. Yeah, it seems like it would look like a dragon fruit. Like, have you ever seen those they're yeah. like that white flesh but the seeds are teeny teeny tiny yeah and they're dispersed throughout it's almost like a little fruity candy bar kind of thing mm-hmm. they also found that today's domesticated watermelon has lost several genes associated with disease resistance that Uh-oh. the cordofan melon retains so maybe that older fruit still has some tricks up its sleeves yeah when the watermelon crops get wiped out by some new <laughs> fungus or something we're all gonna go back to cordofans and be like well this is at least it's not too bitter <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's still here. Yay. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from theguardian.com, and it's titled, Monkeys Adopt Accent of Other Species When in Shared Territory. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So 
Apparently, monkeys will use the accent of another species when they enter its territory to enhance communication, much like a British person living in the U.S. <laughs> might forgo their tomato for tomato, researchers have found. Mm. So, researchers investigated the behavior of 15 groups of two roughly squirrel-sized primate species in the Brazilian Amazon, pied tamarins and red-handed tamarins, and I did not know they came in that size, actually, that's quite small, <laughs> or these are some very large squirrels. <laughs> So the critically endangered pied tamarin, a species with a black hairless face, white shaggy fur on the neck and shoulders, and an almond-hued coat from the waist down, very fancy. He sounds quite dapper, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they largely live around the city of Manaus, and red-handed tamarins, which have ginger hands and feet and a body covered in black fur, are found across the northeast Amazon region. By comparing recordings of the acoustic profile or calls of the two species in three locations, researchers found that the red-handed tamarins adopted the calls of their neighbors in the shared region. The red-handed tamarind call becomes much more like the pied tamarinds, and we think that the reason they do this is because when you're in this shared area and you're a closely related species, you're very likely to come into competition over resources because you've got a similar diet and habitat requirements, said the study's author, Dr. Jacob Dunn, an associate professor in evolutionary biology at Anglia Ruskin University. The two species practically speak the same language anyway, but they need to understand each other's accents, Dunn added. They might need to say tomato instead of tomato. That's the kind of nuance in the accent so that they can really understand each other. And so they're kind of playing around with the consonants. They can make the call longer or slightly higher or lower frequency or a bit more tonal. But essentially, they're still saying the same words. Hmm. Uh, that's in air quotes. Right, right. Uh, well, you know, regular <laughs> quotes. I'm doing air quotes. Uh, why the red-handed tamarins were more adaptive versus the pied tamarins, which seemingly did not try to meet their comrades in the middle, uh. remains a mystery and is the subject of ongoing research. <laughs> My guess is that they're just higher on the disagreeable scale. Yeah. Maybe they just didn't feel like it. Yeah, I mean, I think humans don't do that very often. Yeah. I guess you get some, like you said, agreeable humans who will be like, oh, I'm going to politely try and match what my hosts are, are saying. But I feel like most humans are like, no, I'm digging harder into my accent. I'm a mimic yeah. and I'm an unconscious mimic too, mm -hmm. which actually terrifies me when I am speaking to someone who's British because I'm always terrified I'm going to slip into like a really awful British accent to where they think I'm making fun of them. Where yes. actually I'm just, it, it's kind of like coach shifting, right? Yeah. The way yeah. we talk to our colleagues and our coworkers is different than how we talk to our parents. For sure. I grew up here in Austin my entire life and I've had people to my face angrily tell me that I am lying. <laughs> Because I do not sound like that. I'm like, look, man, I my accent's all over the place. I, I can't justify it. But I will tell you, I'm definitely from here. And they're like, no, no, you aren't. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I guess you're right, man. Like, you're a fraud. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, some people take their accents very seriously. Yeah. yeah like I'm, I'm committing identity fraud by not speaking the way they expect me to. <laughs> a real Texan would be proud to draw. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, next link. <laughs> next link. <Sorry. laughs> next link. All right. I know it's probably been a while because of the pandemic, but when was the last time you guys went to the dentist for a checkup? 
After I got my vaccine, yeah, it was one of the first things I did. So you're the one responsible one, and me and Way are not. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I am one of those people who won the genetic lottery when it comes to teeth. I go to the dentist, like, maybe once every four or five years. And I brush my teeth now, but when I was a kid, I know I went for several years where I just lied to my parents and said I had done it when I hadn't. Gutsy! And yet, I have never once had a cavity in my life. Wow. I mean, it's not fair. I freely acknowledge. I am so jealous. Yeah, it is not (laughs) because of anything I have done. I had two root canals when I was six that I didn't need. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Well, and my husband is is like you. He uses a fancy sonic toothbrush, mouthwash every day, goes to the dentist every six months, and he still gets one every once in a while. Like, Mm -hmm. I I try not to gloat, but I'm just like, meh, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But... For people like you, there is a promising new product developed by a team of researchers at the University of Washington, which is where this article comes from, the School of Dentistry at the University of Washington. And it's a lozenge, basically a breath mint that rebuilds tooth enamel and whitens your teeth all at once. Stop. Yeah. Wait, what does it do to my stomach or my blood levels? Because that sounds way too good to be true. Well, that I don't know. They haven't finished FDA (laughs) testing yet. But all right, all right. (laughs) So the lozenge contains a genetically engineered peptide or a chain of amino acids, along with phosphorus and calcium ions, which are the building blocks of tooth enamel. Mm -hmm. And the peptide is derived from amelogenin, which is the key protein in the formation of tooth enamel and is also necessary for the formation of cementum, which makes up the surface of the root underneath the gums. And Mm. this peptide is engineered to bind to damaged enamel and deposit several micrometers of brand new enamel on the surface without affecting the soft tissues of the mouth. Yeah, they say that one lozenge a day is enough to prevent tooth decay, and two lozenges a day will actively repair damaged teeth and eventually (gasps) even make them like new again. Stop. If I take three lozenges a day, can I grow more teeth? Yeah, you have like <laughs> yeah, 40 or 50 just... of those things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You'll grow more teeth, but it won't be in your mouth. Yeah. Oh, even better. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have no response to that. <laughs> that sounds like such an amazing invention and find, though, because I do have really poor and weak enamel. I suffer from cavities all the time. I mm-hmm. finally found a dentist who uses the lasers to treat cavities. Have you heard oh. of about okay. these two basically you tune the laser so that it's only affecting and vaporizing the decay but doesn't affect the enamel itself and so huh. you know when you're drilling you're getting rid of good and bad right. tooth parts right it's just yeah. it's kind of almost indiscriminate and you have to depend on the dentist to know what they're doing but with the laser i had a cavity filled it took about 20 minutes a couple weeks ago and I was not put under any local anesthesia. I had no shot and it was like magic. So, wow. You know what it's like? It reminds me of those little Japanese fish that bite off the dead skin on your feet and don't get the regular skin. (laughs) Very, very different. But the metaphor works, I promise, in my head. Um. (laughs) If only there were some sort of like natural animal we could have like a biosynced relationship with, like birds that can just go in and kind of peck, peck, all done. It like gives them superpowers. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. I mean, I'm sure there are bugs that will do that if you're willing to let them. (laughs) The insect is where I draw the line, buddy. Sorry. (laughs) 
Well, and since the enamel that it's putting on is brand new enamel, it's whiter than any whitening product. Mm. Plus, most of the whiteners out on the market today rely on hydrogen peroxide to bleach your mm-hmm. teeth, which actively weakens tooth enamel and ultimately results in everything from hypersensitivity to cavities to gum disease. But these researchers have already tested the new lozenge on extracted teeth from pigs, rats, and humans. And once the live human trials are complete and the lozenges are FDA approved, they're looking to create a toothpaste next. And even better, they expect that it will not require a prescription once it's on the (gasps) market. And they are already in talks with, quote, potential corporate partners. So it sounds like this stuff is going to be on the market in the next couple of years, barring any kind of just horrible (laughs) side effects. Like you said, in your stomach, who knows? Maybe it spikes your blood proteins and you can't use it. But boy, I don't know. For perfect (laughs) teeth, it might be worth it for some people. Uh, Or even if not perfect teeth, just healthy oral care, which can really get into some systemic issues if it's not taken care of, right? Oh, yeah. They've linked oral care to heart attacks. Like, specifically, the bacteria from your mouth can affect how likely you are to have a heart attack. It's crazy. Okay. I'm going on the L&L routine, lasers and lozenges. There There you go. go. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Uh, Well, we're going to stick around the food topic here with New Atlas reporting that certain recycled food scraps can yield edible yet robust construction materials. Okay. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack here, but researchers at the Institute of Industrial Science at the University of Tokyo have developed a way to recycle food scraps into construction materials that are stronger than concrete, yet remain edible and tasty. And all I can think of is the mouse plague that's hit Australia. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I, I unfortunately made the mistake of watching one of the videos, and it was a horde of them crawling and racing over hay bales, (laughs) decidedly not cute. And I can only imagine what would happen if you had, like, you know, building. they're going to scale that thing? Yeah, I was going to ask if this research institute in Tokyo is actually just a giant gingerbread house and <laughs> right. all scientists are like witches. Yeah. <laughs> it's run by cats. I've heard this story. <laughs> They're luring you in. That's what this uh-huh. is. <laughs> well, it does aim to solve one big problem, which is food wastage, right? According to the United Nations, about 1.3 billion tons of food is wasted around the world every year. And the basic idea is you take common scraps like fruit and vegetables, you mix them with seaweed, and then process it to produce material that are stronger than concrete but still taste like the original material. I just just don't understand. I mean, you cannot eat concrete. It's too hard. My (laughs) teeth would crack. So, like, I'm assuming to make it edible, you then soften it again somehow. But uh, how do you soften it? Because, okay, so you have this building made of food scraps and then it rains? Like, the whole thing's going to just sog down on top of you and you're going to... Drown in a bunch of melon rinds. I don't I'm I'm not saying they're liars. I'm just saying it's very confusing to me. It is to me too. And so let's take a closer look at the actual process they used here because, you know, intact melon rinds as a visual is not necessarily in play. So what they did is used a technique that was originally developed to make building materials from wood powder. And so Researchers took food scraps like seaweed, cabbage leaves, orange, onion, pumpkin, banana peels. They vacuum dried them and then pulverized them into a super fine powder. They then mixed the powder with water and seasonings and pressed it in a mold at high temperature. And the results resisted rot, it resisted fungi, and even resisted insects for a test period of four months. Even adding sugar and salt did not affect a material's strength 
with the exception of the specimen derived from pumpkin, all of the materials exceeded the researchers' bending strength target. They also found why, that... <laughs> why not pumpkin? What is happening with this technology? I don't understand. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Please continue. It's okay. Like, I feel you on this because the more I read, the more detail they went into, I just kept asking, why is this a thing right. that we're doing? But, but I'll tell you what they found. They found that Chinese cabbage leaves, which produced a material over three times stronger than concrete, but not anywhere near as hard. Otherwise, the edibility would be moot. I, the, you know what this feels like? This feels like a really questionable definition of stronger than concrete. Like, you know how they're like, yeah. oh, diamonds are the hardest substance, but really right. they just mean scratchability. You can smash right. a diamond really easily. I think yeah. they're just like, oh yeah, the hardness, when I look at it, I, yeah, I'm not buying it. I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely not buying it. I am too. And, you know, they mentioned the whole remaining edible aspect of this is touted throughout the article. And I can't imagine why that's a benefit. <laughs> yeah, like I put up a wall in my house and then I'm like, ah, oh, this wall feels a little weak. Let me just like break down this beef jerky wall and <laughs> throw in a little Chinese cabbage wall instead. Yeah. And then. <laughs> to be fair, most of this stuff was all vegetables, okay. right? So they were looking at seaweed, cabbage, onion, orange. I don't think a beef jerky house would do anything other than get a pack of wolves to move in real fast. But, but I could have a tofu wall is what you're saying. Yes, <laughs> but not a pumpkin one because no. that's ridiculous. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, I'm going to return to our reality now. <laughs> <laughs> this article comes to us from newatlas.com and is titled Galapagos tortoise species returns from extinction after 115 years. So haven't seen one for a long time. There there it was just walking around. Wow, it's just uh, like strolling down the street and they're like, oh, it's one of you. Yeah. <laughs> so DNA tests have confirmed that a specimen found in 2019 is indeed a long lost Fernandina giant tortoise, which has long been known only by a single specimen collected in 1906. Hmm. Expeditions to the island have found evidence of the creatures before. In 1964, suspiciously tortoise-like droppings were discovered, <laughs> and <laughs> a flyover in 2009 revealed what kind of sort of looked like a tortoise. But this is verbatim from the article. The record, so <laughs> I like to imagine that the scientists wrote this down in their field notes. They were like, morphology, kind of sort of tortoise. It's, that has to be some type of scientific measurement, though. Kind of yeah, sort of. It's like being spaghettified. Very scientific. Right. Uh, but all of these sightings remained unconfirmed. So it was like the Bigfoot of tortoises, I guess. <laughs> Finally, in 2000. 2019, a living, breathing tortoise was discovered on the island, but that alone wasn't enough to confirm the species. Mm. Whalers and sailors had been known to ferry the creatures between the Galapagos Islands in the past, so the specimen could have belonged to a, any of about a dozen species. So to find out for sure, the team conducted a DNA test for the specimen, since named Fernanda, or just Fern, mm -mm. comparing her to a sample taken from the original Fernandina tortoise. And sure enough, it was a match. Hey! 
I mean, tortoises live a really long time, though. Are they certain it's not the same tortoise that they found in 1906? (laughs) She's the only one of her species, and she's just hanging out like, oh, man, these scientists are back again. Uh, (laughs) I feel like they probably would have been able to tell that in the DNA, but who knows, you know? I mean, they wrote down that they kind of, sort of saw a tortoise (laughs) and suspicious dropping. So, you know, who knows what level of accuracy we're really working with here. Um, So Fern was transferred to a breeding center on another island where it's hoped that she might be able to continue her line. And she's not the first Galapagos tortoise to be scrubbed off the extinction list. Last year's genetic tests revealed that Lonesome George, who died in 2012 and was presumed the last of his species, still has living relatives. The Fernandina giant tortoise is now the seventh species to be rediscovered as part of Rewild's Search for Lost Species program. The list includes Jackson's Climbing Salamander, Wallace's Giant Bee, the Silver-Backed Chevrotain, Volkskau's Chameleon, the Velvet Pitcher Plant, and the Somali Sengi. I mean, it kind of feels like they're maybe a little trigger happy when it comes to declaring something extinct. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's like a shy species, you know? Mm -hmm. I also have a a few questions about the act of just taking that one very endangered one they found away from its native environment. Yeah, (laughs) but I mean, I don't know. I guess you could argue that the chances of the species being repopulated is much higher in captivity than out of the wild, but you know. uh. Yeah, if you can get that one breeding and then reintroduce them all, but You know, for all they know, there's thousands of them, and they're just really good at hiding from people. (laughs) The stealthiest turtle species known to man. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Francis Bacon's Frightening Beauty, Making Sense of the Great Whip Spider Boom, and Is the Hubble Constant Not Constant? So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.